to Jonah this morning, the book of Jonah. I know that may be somewhat of an obscure place, some of those places in the Bible where the pages stick together, because <laughs> it's been a while. Um, but it's in the Minor Prophets. An easy way to find that would just be start at Matthew and then work your way back. Um, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk is in the middle of that sandwich there, the book of Jonah. And if you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, and we'll just read two verses this morning. And this morning will be somewhat of an introduction into the book of Jonah. So it'll be a little different. We will go verse by verse through it over the course of the next three months, probably, um, two to three months. Um, but this morning will be somewhat introductory to lay foundation. And it may seem heavy at first, but um, I hope that you'll labor with me in mind, because I think that it'll be helpful to you in the rest of the um, time together here in the book of Jonah, if, if we'll grasp a little bit of what the Lord would have for us um, today in this introduction. But the book of Jonah, chapter 1 and verse number 1, we read these words. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out, cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you once again just to ask for your blessing. Father, we ask your blessing upon the reading of the word. Um, two short verses. Yet at the same time, we recognize so many men, women, and children being converted um, by the reading of one. And Father, we praise you for that the power that is contained within your word, that same word that spoke the worlds into existence and something out of nothing, uh, Father, is the same word that we just read. Father, I pray that you'd help us to revere it and to honor it, Father, as more than just ink on a page this morning, but as that, the very word of God, God has thus spoken. Father, we pray in your blessing not upon the reading, but also on the proclamation of it, as well as the receiving of it. Father, you would use it this morning um, to transform our minds, Father, and transform our lives by the renewing of our minds. Um, Father, that um, we would heed that great exhortation by the Apostle Paul to present ourselves a living sacrifice unto God, wholly acceptable. Father, that this is our reasonable worship. It is reasonable this morning for us to listen to you. And Father, um, we trust that in that you will do an unspeakable work in our hearts and lives. Father, that you will make us more like your son. Father, that we will love more, we will be holier, and we will be more righteous, we will be more patient and long-suffering, Father. Um, as you exalt your son this morning and we see him, we pray that you would do that eternal work in us, Father, um, such that um, as we gather together and afterwards, Father, we can say, truly, we met with God this morning. He made himself known to me by the power of His Spirit through His Word. And I am forever changed. Father, I pray that for my own heart. Um, Father, even as, even as I labor through my own exposition, Father, and I read these words, um, I long for You. I long for You, Father, to work in my heart and my life. Father, I long to commune with You. Father, I long to feel the warmth of Your Son by the power of Your Spirit. I long to hear His words, Father, um, as, as loving, 
and sometimes as hard as they may be. Father, we just long to be with him this morning. So, Father, um, would you give us the desires of your, our heart? Um, Father, and make your son known this morning to us in a way that we can say we saw Christ. He was high and lifted up, and I am continually changed by it. So, Father, um, we, we give this time to you now that you may be honored, and, Father, that we may be edified. And if somebody's here without you, that they may be saved. Father, may the gospel go forth with some clarity this morning, and such even to the saving of sinners. For it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. As you've already taken note this morning, we'll begin to take a look and, and tackle the book of Jonah. We finish up Philippians and um, are now taking it as our task to, to tackle this very well-known book. But the selection in and of itself may seem strange to some of you. How do I know that? Because some of you have said, this is strange to us. <laughs> some sense you've already communicated to me that it seems like a, a rare place to go. Jonah is one of those books, um, honestly, I think in part you, you think that way because Jonah is one of those books that doesn't seem see much spotlight from behind the pulpit. It's more of a story relegated to a children's Sunday school hour. And I doubt that there's a Sunday school in the world that ever omits it. It's one of those stories that is somewhat universal. Why? Uh, maybe because it evokes in, in the, those little minds, maybe in our minds, somewhat of a sense of wonder because we serve a miraculous God and what a story it is about the miracle um, and the miracles that God can, can um, accomplish. And in some sense, um, that is exactly what it should do. Or it could be that it absents from most pulpits on Sunday mornings because it is somewhat of a strange book. Uh, it provokes questions in us that we ourselves don't even like to ask, let alone ponder what the answers to those questions are. But I would just simply ask this morning, when I say the name Jonah in reference to the Bible, um, I would just begin with that question, what do you think about? Some I've provoked and they immediately think of a stubborn and a rebellious man. Mentioned to one person, this is what I'm going to preach. He's like, man, you're really going to give it to those rebellious sinners, aren't you? You know, no, no that's, that's not really the goal. Although there will be time for that. Um, myself, the chiefest. Um, why? Because there was a rebellious and a stubborn man, a man who was called of God, yet he refused to go in submission to that call. Or maybe your mind is drawn immediately maybe to the little ones, to that great fish, that, that fish that God had prepared to swallow Jonah and be his place of residence for three days and three nights. Maybe you think of the impossibility of such an account. That to entertain it even seems childish or preposterous on the, on the face of it. And that's a common view in our day. Or maybe our mind is drawn to the moment when Jonah's spit out upon that shore and man, he's alive. What a miracle. Or maybe our mind is drawn to Jonah's reluctant obedience to preach repentance to Nineveh and their wholesale conversion. I mean, he seems like a strange guy. <laughs> I mean, given the Word of God to go and to preach the Word of God to a lost people 
And Jonah will reveal to us in chapter number 4 that the thing that he was worried about was not the danger that, ensued, that, that was possibly ensuing upon him. It wasn't the difficulty of the mission, but it was because um, Jonah knew that he served a merciful God and that God may just save them. Seems odd. Or maybe you think about Jonah's continued difficulty, again, and the strange ending with Jonah pouting over the death of a gourd there in chapter number 4. Yet He's still upset that God spared, even seemingly after three days in the well, and there's a miraculous account of deliverance. It seems that Jonah's really not learned his lesson at all. And thus, at the end of chapter number 4, you get this rhetorical question by God. Um, where he says, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored. And then later he says, should I not pity Nineveh? Again, Jonah was somewhat of a, a strange cat, a prophet, um, who stands out above the rest, but not necessarily for what you might hope that he stands out. And all these things are somewhat common to think about when we think about the book of, of Jonah and the man Jonah. It's pretty common to think about the book of Jonah and immediately be drawn to some of those things. You know, the miraculous nature of the book, even its questionable reality. I mean, this is one of the reasons in which um, the, the book has been under scrutiny by atheists and skeptics and even weaponized um, to, 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 in, in the realm of using it against to discredit the Bible as a whole. Um, we have to deal with that as we come to the book of Jonah. Right, that, that so many today um, look at it as if it's not a true account. And some Christians will actually say, yeah, I don't believe it's true either. <laughs> it's somewhat of a pilgrim's progress, an allegorical type of story where Jonah stands for some truth, the well, the well stands for some truth, um, the gourd stands for some truth, and God's speaking this truth through somewhat of an allegorical. We're going to stand against that this morning. Right? Um and the emphasis, or the emphasis can be uh, for many in the reality that the book draws out some simple morals that should be stressed. And they should. Morals like obedience, right? That we must not run like Jonah from the Lord. We must not run from His presence, His intimate communion. Um, or you may run and without a doubt we're going to have an evangelistic type sermon. Or some, at least some application. That we are to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That, that if God wants to give mercy and grace to the Assyrians or to the people at Nineveh, and he has every right to do that. You know what? We should cheer him on. We should not be like Jonah. But those are not what I would consider to be the greatest points. They, they grow out of greater points. They are elements of a bigger narrative and a greater message. See, the book of Jonah is not only a message about Jonah, and it's not only a message about us, but first and foremost, when we approach a book, especially like Jonah, I would, I would encourage you to ask a question um, like this. What does this book teach me about God? Um, that, that Jonah is a God-centered book. That it begins with Him. He wrote it. Not only with the ink that we see on the page, not only preserved it within the 66 books that we have, but also wrote it in history, determined for it to happen, and left it for us for a particular reason, to teach us something not only about us, but the greatest things that we'll ever learn about us is when we stand in the face of God. That's when we really find out like who's, what we're made of um, and who we truly are. So the greatest emphasis in any book should always be led, or should always be laid upon God Himself. 
upon the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. What does this teach us about Him? And from that we draw um, conclusions about obedient life and evangelistic endeavors and so forth and, and so on. Um, but to do that first, I would simply encourage you with a sense of, uh, of instruction, but also application. Uh, let me just say, to the point that I mentioned just a second ago, um, that to understand the greater message of Jonah, um, we must first cast off the atheist skepticisms and the, literal, the liberals' compromise and say unashamedly this morning that what we have in the book of Jonah is what I'm going to argue is a true historical account. All right? There is no reason within the text that I read, there is no reason within the book as a whole, there is no reason within the canon of Scripture, all 66 books, um, to think that Jonah is anything other than a true historical account. Uh, one reason above many, but at the top of them, is, is that Jesus believed that it was real. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38, we read these words, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to them. Or no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so, we, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed a greater than Jonah is here. <clears throat> that Jesus Christ himself utilizes the imagery <clears throat> and that true historical account um, to relate something to the people of God about himself. First and foremost, boys and girls, <clears throat> we are to believe that Jonah was a real historical figure. When I say that, what I mean is, is that he's as real as you and I. He's as real as George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. Um, these men, he's, he, is, he is as well attested to um, in, our, in, in our literature as well as um, in our, should be in our minds. That Jonah was a real man placed in a real time with a real people, a real fish, and a real message sent on a real mission. And today we are to glean from that. And I think that part of the reason we fail to grasp that rea the, the realities, the great realities before us, um, is because we've discarded the book, maybe as that, as history, or we've discarded the history around it. And so in order to grasp a um, greater picture with more clarity, and I hope this morning, I, I want to first look at its, its, its historical account. I mean, again, this may be somewhat laborious to you, but, 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 but I hope that it is a blessing to you um, if you'll labor with me. So, a little history, when we read verse number 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. That this is placed in a particular set of time, with circumstances surrounding it. And I think it's helpful to know that today as we begin this study in the book of, of Jonah. When we study the Old Testament narrative, so all of the Old Testament history, and we see a story of God unraveling for the redemption of His people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And what we see is that God raised up Jonah at a critical time in history for a particular purpose. So let us step back maybe 3,000 years 
This was set around 800 B.C., so approximately 3,000 years ago, we meet Jonah. And let's get a little glimpse into his life as well as the time. But even to back up further than that, you'll remember that the nation of Israel was born in, a, in, in, in its most primitive form in a man by the name of Abraham. He was the original Hebrew called out of a pagan land from the Ur of the Chaldees to a place that God would lead him and show him. Through his promised lineage would be born Isaac and Jacob. Jacob would later be named Israel. From Israel would come twelve tribes. Eventually, in God's providence, the nation would find itself in exodus and bondage in Egypt. You know the story. God would bring them out by the hand of Moses. They would wander in the desert for 40 years before entering into the land under a man by the name of Joshua. From that time forward, at least for a period, they would be ruled by judges. Um, the people would eventually desire a king in order to be like all the other nations. They would receive a man by the name of Saul. Saul was a man that was head and shoulders above all other men. He would eventually be rejected through his disobedience and David would be chosen. Through much history, David would finally ascend to the throne. He would give birth to a son. That son would be named Solomon. Solomon would enjoy peace in Israel that would never be before experienced. But Solomon would also be somewhat of the death nail in the coffin for the nation of Israel. Why? Because he would lead the nation into such evils that were not prior. He would bind himself with foreign pagan wives in such a way to lead the nation into idolatry through his sexual immorality and marrying women from other nations. After his death, um, they would not see a, a, a unified nation led by a single man. After his, na after his death, Solomon's death, the nation would split into two kingdoms. We would call them, the, the, we refer to them as the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. Uh, the northern kingdom having ten of those tribes, the southern kingdom having two of those tribes um, operating as somewhat two different distinct nations. Over and over again, the Bible reports king after king after king that did which, that which was evil in his sight with somewhat of a sprinkling of good kings here and there, only in the southern part, never in the north. That, that after Solomon, there is this moral degeneracy and spiritual darkness that would come upon the land because of wicked leadership after wicked leadership after wicked leadership. And upon the dark scene, upon that dark scene, God would send a succession of prophets to declare His Word and His will afresh and anew to call His people back to Himself. During that period of time, we would see captivity and slavery. We would see war after war and, and the nation of Israel being taken into bondage and slavery until they would repent. And in the midst of that, prior to that, God would have, there would be this continual monument of God's loving kindness um, to the people of Israel as He would send man after man after man to declare His Word. And oftentimes, what you would see would be murder after murder after murder. Jesus will actually argue in Matthew chapter 23 that they continually murdered the prophets instead of receiving them as God. But God in His grace and God in His immeasurable mercy um, in, in patience and long-suffering would continue to send these men on a mission with a message to the people of God to draw them back into communion with Him. To Israel, He would send Elijah and Elisha with miracles and a message. After that, they would, he would send Jonah. He would send Amos. He would send Hosea, who would proclaim faithfully the Word of God. 
prophets, these men given the message to proclaim to the people of God that they should turn from their sins and to return to God. And if that wasn't enough, um, outside of Israel was a nation by the name of Assyria. So you see this idolatry being practiced within the nation of Israel during the time of Jonah. And then we enter into the equation, Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of a place called Assyria. Assyria is in what we would understand as modern day Iraq. During this time, Assyria was the greatest power of the day. Um, But at the same time, it seems to be one of the weakest times in its greatest power. Um, that, that, That historically, if we can place Jonah where I think Jonah should be, You'll actually look historically as well, and you'll find that Assyria is at a place in which there's instability within the nation. There's infighting. The king has been brought down, and now there's a fight for the throne. Um, Thus God sends to them, too, a prophet. Not only to Israel, but also um, to Assyria. So Jonah was a prophet to that northern kingdom. The northern Israel under the reign of a man by the name of King Jeroboam II. He was, a, he was a wicked and one of the most wicked of the men during that time. The Lord detested the abominable things, the scripture says, that Jeroboam did. But God did. Take note of this. As we look at Jonah. We look at him preaching to this northern kingdom during this time. He's about to go to Assyria at one of the weakest times in their nation's history. Um, One question to ask is if we're going to learn about Jonah, is Jonah found anywhere else in the text of Scripture? Because Jonah doesn't actually tell us much about Jonah here in the book. For short chapters, we don't actually learn a great deal about him. So how do we place him in this time? Well, Jonah is also mentioned in another place in the text of Scripture Uh, Particularly 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And during this time, God does an unusual thing. Um, As I've already mentioned, Jeroboam, this wicked king, who deserves God's wrath, continually leads the people of God into idolatry and sexual sin and a whole host of other things. Um, What would you expect God to do during this time? But to send His judgment. But God does not. Actually, instead God pour, instead of God pouring out His wrath upon Jeroboam because of his wickedness, God extends great mercy to the nation of Israel. And for a period of time, God allows for Israel not only to survive, but to thrive, to prosper in a way not seen before. It was a time of unparalleled blessing upon the nation, not because of their obedience, but in spite of their disobedience. It was a token of God's mercy upon them. 2 Kings 14, verse 25, um, you read these words. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hanath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. Same name, same father. The prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free... There was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. In essence, what, 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 the, what, what the Scripture is telling us is, is that, that you have, not, you have this, this period of time in which judgment should have been poured out, but God extends to them great mercy. And he uses Jonah as a mouthpiece to, 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 to accomplish that. 
And God tells us why there in the text of Scripture. Why? Because He looked upon Israel and He pitied their state. He saw that they were in affliction and that He was very, and the, 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 the affliction was very bitter. And thus God reaches out and extends to them mercy that they do not deserve. Jonah. Now get this because this is important. At least I think it is. It is to me. Uh, maybe not. Jonah was a prophet prior to going to Syria to Israel, established and received the Word of God and gave the Word of God to deliver this message, what? Particularly a message of mercy. You can, and apparently he had no problem with it. You can imagine the excitement that Jonah must have had. Other prophets are coming. They're pronouncing judgment. Assyria, uh, within, within a generation, seemingly comes in the historical narrative. And God sends Jonah to preach mercy to the nation of Israel when they are completely undeserving. And God extends their borders. And God um, lays upon them this, this blessing of prosperity. So when we approach the account, we're introduced to a man who wasn't a novice. No, nor was he a man who knew nothing of the unique blessing of the mercy of God. He would have known, been known at home, possibly abroad, for the prophet bringing blessing and prosperity to the nation of Israel when they deserved judgment. So, we know a little bit about Jonah. What do we know about Assyria? Or Nineveh? That's what the text says. He's to go to Nineveh. Nineveh, again, was that, that capital city. As I mentioned, at the time that Jonah goes, it seems that they're experiencing some internal instability, some domestic struggles. Um, Nineveh would have been that capital city, a city found in modern-day Iraq, as I mentioned. And it was a city known for its greatness. It was a city known for great power, great wealth, great prestige, armies incalculable, um, power unfathomable, a force to be reckoned with, but also... Not only was it great in power, wealth, and prestige, it was great in wickedness, the Scripture says. That out of all of its attributes and character, out of all of its activities and wonders, you know what God takes note of? Jonah 1-2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. God doesn't note the grand architecture. He doesn't take note of the civil structure. He doesn't say anything about their cultural advances, um, their technology, but their wickedness. Their wickedness was so poignant that it had reached the face of God. And judgment was imminent upon them. That's why Jonah is going to go and preach 40 days or destruction. But Nineveh was a godless city filled with godless people. There was rampant idolatry, sexual immorality as high as the mountain, and their abuse of the law and cruelty was unparalleled. They were known as a, as a gruesome people. Um, Nahum 3.1 says Nineveh was a city, quote, a city of bloodshed. And what they would do to their enemy was, was unparalleled up to this time. They were ruthless um, people. And if it wasn't bad enough, the Scriptures tell us in Isaiah that Assyria had actually had the nation of Israel in their crosshairs. That it was a time, that, that this is the time Jonah, as in 2 Kings, and then, then, then history tells us Assyria during this time was in a real power struggle. And apparently this was during the death of one, again, uh, one of their kings. And they're in a weakest point. Now it's at this point in history that these two nations, that God raises up a prophet to go to Nineveh. And I want to argue that the, that the time is significant. 
With Israel prospering as a minor power, as Assyria unstable, um, and what many would consider to be weak, this is a moment that the prophet's ministry would have had the greatest impact in Assyria. Sure, God can use the Word of God at any time, even at their greatest But oftentimes, like us, God brings us to the end of ourselves through providence and through our circumstances. And that's when the Word of God comes, the soil is prepared. Right? Some of us, God has to bring us to our lowest point so that the Word of God can take root as He He, um, breaks up that hardened soil and then the Word goes forth. I'm arguing that that's what happened. That Assyria is at its lowest point. Thus, God sends Jonah. God sends Jonah to preach a message of repentance. A message to call them out of their wickedness. To keep them at bay. To take them out from the face of God. Their wickedness from the face of God. So Jonah would... And in the sending of Jonah to these wicked, wicked people with a message of repentance at the height of their wickedness, but in their weakness, God would also do something else. Um... Something unthinkable, not only to Jonah, but to, the, but, but to the Israelites, to the Assyrians, and even us today. God would demonstrate that He was a God of unfathomable mercy. God extended His grace to them. And I'm going to argue that not only did God extend His grace to Assyria, but that God in this was actually also extending grace to Israel. That Israel wouldn't understand, Jonah wouldn't understand. He's going to reluctantly go and give this message of life, of repentance, but all at the same time, what God is doing in Assyria, I'm going to argue, is for Israel's benefit. So what should we walk away with? Big picture. Now that was, again, laborious. What do we have? We have the nation of Israel falling apart, split into two kingdoms. Jonah is going to the northern kingdom at a time of prosperity. A man who knows, as the prophet of God, the unique blessing of the mercy of God, who should understand mercy, is now called to Assyria, one of the most wicked people in all the earth, to, to preach a message of mercy to them, which he is reluctant to do so. Um, for a possible number of reasons. So what does the book of Jonah, what does this all tell us about God? It tells us ultimately that God is a God of mercy. If you walk away with anything from this book and you say, what does this teach me about God? Boys and girls, I want you to say God is merciful. Right? Psalm 136, His mercy endures forever. That it is unthinkable and unfathomable, not only on Assyria, but also on Israel and ultimately on all of us. That we should walk away after reading the book of Jonah to be, be being um, enamored with the mercy of God. That He gives a message of life, not only to the covenant people of God in Israel, but to the nations. And ultimately that life is found in Jesus Christ. So I want to give you three facets of that message this morning. Three facets of that message as we come to the book of Jonah that I would like for you to keep in the back of your mind as we work through the book of Jonah as God's purpose in the book of Jonah. Three facets of Jonah's mission and what God was striving to accomplish or accomplishing in the people of God and the nations during this time. Number one, what was God doing in sending Jonah? I'm going to argue that number one, and this isn't in priority. This is actually probably um, the least priority. But, but it's interwoven. Um, that number one, Jonah's mission was to stir up the people of God. Number one, what was God doing in sending Jonah? 
You may not have thought that at the forefront, because that's not what's really laid blatantly upon the text. But I would argue that God's sending Jonah. God was actually striving to incite and stir up the people of God to revive their hearts and to draw them back to Him. That God's pursuit of Assyria is to God's pursuit of Israel. God's pursuit of Israel is to, at the same time, tandem with, conjoined with God's pursuit of Israel. Paul says in Romans chapter number 11, verse 13, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 20, you read these words. God is pronouncing judgment. Moses is singing a song and he's pronouncing judgment upon the people of God. And he says this. This is God speaking. I will hide my face from them. Speaking to the, the nation of Israel. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation. Children in whom is no faith. They have promote, provoked me to jealousy. By what is not God. They have moved me to anger. By their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy. By those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger. By a foolish nation. But God under the Old Testament scriptures. As he covenants with the people of God. Promises them unique blessing in their obedience. But in their disobedience. There are certain curses that come with that. And one of the curses is. That, that I will forsake you. Because you've forsaken me. And I will go to another people. You have made me jealous. Therefore I will make you jealous. And that as the gospel goes forth to the nations, particularly here in the nation of Israel, what God desired in it was not only to deliver the nation of Assyria and to extend to them the gospel in Christ and saving faith and grace and mercy, but God desired in that display to exhibit His mercy in such a way that Jonah should have taken note. That the nation of Israel should have said, Oh, what a merciful God. That God desired His people to know that He was dissatisfied, displeased with their backsliding in a very distinct way. So when they would not hear the direct voice from the prophets, He would proclaim and preach another message to them through the work of His hands in another people. He would proclaim possibly even a greater message as He sends His message of repentance and faith and the salvation of God to the nation of Assyria. It was as if He was proclaiming the gospel to them. Because they would see a display of God's mercy in those people in such a way that should have caused them to repent. This is going to be repeatedly, over and over again, um, God, a theme within the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. That God is sending them prophet after prophet and message after message and they would not hear. They will not repent and they would not return. That God did this not only out of a love for the nations, not only as a fulfillment of that great prophecy in Genesis 3.15, as well as that promise to Abraham to bless the nations through the seed, but also to pour out His love and mercy upon the people of God in the hardness of their hearts, in their utter idolatry, um, and in their forsakenness of, of God. That, as I said, there's a repeated theme all throughout the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. That God is laboring with His people. He's laboring. 
And he's laboring in such a way that over and over, you know what he says? He says, if I would have done that somewhere else, they would have repented. But you would not. You remember that passage in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 through 24, when Jesus indicts the generation that is their apostate Israel, the Pharisees. And what does he say to them? That if the miracles would have been done here, uh, or it would have been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, um, then, then they would have repented wholesale, but you would not. You would not. He says the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 3. He, he says that, 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 that if, if Ezekiel would have been sent to someone with an unclear and confused speech, he said they would have listened. But they would not. Isaiah chapter number 5. You see a similar message. Isaiah, Isaiah proclaims, God proclaims to the nation of Israel the blessings that He had extended to the people of God. What He had made them. His promises to them. His blessings for them. And he expresses it in the language of a vineyard. And he says in chapter 5 and verse 1 in Isaiah. Now let me sing to my well-beloved. He says, let me sing you a song. A song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it and cleared it out of its stones. And planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the midst. And also made a wine press in it. So we expected to bring forth good grapes, and, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more, he says, what more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge. It'll be burned. I'll break down its wall. It'll be trampled upon. I will lay it waste. Shall not pruned or dug. But there shall come up thorns and briars. I will also command the clouds to rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice. But behold, depression for righteousness. Behold, a cry. That he's giving this imagery of all the blessings that he had poured out upon. He chose the choicest of vineyards, put it in the most proper place, put a watchtower within it. And with that great indictment there in verse number four, he says, what else could I have done? How much more love could I have poured out upon the people? How much more, what would it have taken for you to repent? For you to turn? For you to come? For you to receive my love? God is pleading with His people. And God sending Jonah to the nation of Israel. God too is pleading with Israel. Look at what is available to you. Look at the mercy that I have. And yet they would not hear. Thus the indictment comes, if I would have sent them to a people. If the same thing would have been done in this nation that was done in those people, they would have repented. And Assyria, Nineveh is testimony to that. You know? Just to draw a little application, if that doesn't make sense to you, maybe it will make sense to us by bringing it home. Drive it a little more home. Isn't this true of us? Does this not happen to us today? As the Lord deals with His church, are we not often those men and women who slowly begin to drift away 
um, from the Lord. Such that we look back and it's just, it's just unveiled upon us at one point and we wonder, where in, the Lord, where in the world did we deter from the Lord? Right? We'll wake up one day and be miles apart from Him, haven't heard from Him in months or years. And we'll wonder, at what point did the silence come upon me? At one point, did my ear deafen to His voice? How did I draw so far away? And what will God do sometimes? And I pray often. He'll bring a believer in your life. Someone with new faith. And it'll be the most unlikely of converts. <laughs> it'll be someone that you never thought should have been saved at all. It'll be someone that maybe you had given up on. A family member or a person within your work. And somebody that you never even knew had the spark of faith will come up to you and say, Hey, I know you're a believer. Will you pray for me? Like, I didn't even know you were a Christian. And that if, you, if, you, if you're in, in the right state, God will use that actually to draw you back. As an act of mercy to show you the mercy of God and His, His, His treasures forevermore. But if you're not, you know, maybe you'll be like Jonah. I know better than that. How many times are we like Jonah? Right? Instead of looking at that like it's the mercy and the grace of God which should stir up our faith and strengthen our inner man and provoke us on to servants. Oftentimes we'll look at any move of God. We'll hear of anything that God may be doing in this place or that place. And us upon our pedestal and our high heels will say, give it time. You know, there's no way that that could be true. But do you not know that God does the unthinkable? Do we not recognize that God does the impossible? And how they must have had conversations back in Israel, hearing of a revival in Assyria, and they gathered around their tables and said, no way. And continued to harden their hearts in this display of God, and this utter grace that He extends to them. He's striving to stir up the people of God, and yet they will not hear. And the story of Israel goes that within one generation... Um, they continue in their hardness. They do not see the mercy of God. They will not repent. Um, even at the utter display of God's mercy to the nation of Assyria. That great message which Jonah preached. There was a greater message which was preached to them through the conversion of the most wicked. Number two. What is, what is the message of Jonah? What was God striving to accomplish in that in that mission that he gave to Jonah. Number one, to stir up the people of God. Number two, to proclaim grace and new life. And mercy to a people who were not his people. And this, I may argue, is the second greatest intent of the book. That God desired to extend grace to the nations of the world. That at some point in the nation of Israel, they had become so narrow-minded, so ethnically prejudiced, so spiritually elite, that they perceived all the other nations of the earth were condemned already simply because God had not chosen them nationally and given them covenant blessings like the nation of Israel. But Israel wouldn't recognize at different points that the reason that God had extended such blessing to them was that they may be a blessing to the nations. That the gospel would pour forth through them to the rest of the nations. 
The, 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 so God um, pierces in time and reality to extend His grace to a nation who was not His nation, to a people who were not His people. Thus Jonah unfolds the immeasurable, incalculable mercy of God as he saves some arguably the, the most wicked people in all the earth. And the Jews would have been totally astounded by it and in completely un, unbelief. And in all reality, we understand why. Because this is mercy too deep to grasp. This is mercy too deep to grasp. And Jonah couldn't grasp it. He couldn't. He couldn't understand it. It didn't make sense to him. He rolled it around in his little brain and he didn't. You know, there's many speculations as to why Jonah wouldn't go. The danger of the mission, um, the, the, the nature of the mission, the nature of the people, the wickedness of the people, um, here and there. But you know what Jonah, the actual book, tells us? You know what God tells us the reason that he couldn't go or wouldn't go? Jonah chapter 4 and verse number 2. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Isn't that an amazing statement? And I mean, let's just be honest, we're not too far from Jonah. Jonah had embodied somewhat of a pride and a prejudice for a people as, they, as he and the nation of Israel had, had wandered from God even as a prophet such that he was angry, bitter, upset with the Lord. Why? Because he, he said, and thus he, he disobeys. He, he exits the very face of God, it says in Jonah 1 through 3, that he leaves the presence of the Lord. But Jonah arose to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, from that intimate communion. Why? Because he knew that there was a people in whom God would be gracious and merciful to, and he didn't think it should be so. Why? Maybe because of their wickedness. Why? Maybe because in the future they're going to come and be the tool, the, the rod in God's hand to execute judgment upon the nation of Israel. Maybe a hundred different things. But, but Jonah had come to the point in which he thought that the nation of Assyria and that the people of Nineveh should not be saved. And he knew that if the message was preached, that God might just do that. Thus, he deters in disobedience from the very presence of the Lord. Thus, Jonah stands as a testament to the mercy of God that even in the disobedience of God's people, He desires the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. That ever since the, 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 since the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, Genesis chapter number 12, that covenant that He makes with Abraham, it is to bless a people who are not His people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter number 5, um, uh, uh, displays for us a day in which every nation, tribe, and tongue will gather around the throne for the, for the purpose of worshiping and honoring and glorifying God. That God had always had His eye upon a people and Know this, that all of those people were always wicked people. It's just a different brand. You know? It's just a different brand in Assyria than it, than it is in Israel. And some may argue, and Jesus actually argues all throughout His Gospels, that the brand that was in Israel was worse. 
That they had so declined in spirituality, they were they become so legalistic, so hardened to the things of God and the communion of God, such that that that, that if 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 works and miracles had been done, they would not have received them, and they didn't, and they ended up murdering the Christ. That when we walk away from the the book of Jonah, church, we should be enamored by the mercy and grace of God. We should be enamored by the mercy and the grace of God. You see, and you may say, I would never be like Jonah. And you may be exactly like Jonah. I may be exactly like him. I mean, it's easy to argue for a general blessing of God among the people. But sit down and counsel a pedophile. Go to the prisons. Some of those men have done some of the most unthinkable things. There's a story of a pastor in the 1940s um, who was called a Lutheran pastor, called to go um, to the Nuremberg um, trials to shepherd the Nazi generals who led directly under Hitler's regime. You know what he said at the beginning? He said, I don't want to go. He was so reluctant. Why? Because of the things that they did to the Jews. It was unthinkable. Assyria um, was possibly greater. The things that they did to children. Unspeakable and unthinkable. Things that you never have to think about. When you sit down and counsel the people of God. When you engage in the world, you read a little bit of history, you talk to people, you get into their lives, and what you begin to find is that we are living in a dark world. Boys and girls, if you have been raised by godly parents who have sheltered you and protected you, you should thank God for them. Because not everyone is so fortunate. There's so much wickedness. I used to be the the cat that was also curious. You know, who had to know and to wonder everything. I remember years ago, um, a man who's a brother in Christ, and I worked with him, and, and all of a sudden he's just gone. He's gone for two weeks, and I just couldn't, I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. We would text him, and we would call him, and we would... Um, and we were brothers in Christ. We were close. And I just took it in offense, brother. Like, what? You just leave like that? Nothing. Within the month, he reached out to me and my wife. And um, we, we watched their little girl for a little while. We got to thinking. We got to talking. And, and he told me why. And I found out I didn't want to know. Um, all that curiosity, all that anger, all that bitterness, all that offense that I had taken... I'm at the end of the day, I really, I really didn't want to know. There's so much wickedness in the world. I am so thankful for our Lord. Who carries all of that every day. Every day. 
Some things that, 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 that we would not be able to get out of bed. Some things that are so depressing and discouraging. Some things that are unthinkable. Um, that, 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 that murder men not only dead, but also murder them alive. Some of the things and the burdens that men and women have to carry because of the wickedness of men and the wickedness of women and the wickedness of regimes. Our Lord carries that every day. Measure up all the sins and all the offenses and all the wickedness of all the ages and it's at the very face of God right now as we speak. And I'm thankful that I have a Lord that could bear that not only as the Father but also as the Son that that was what was poured out upon Him that day. I want to talk about the, the Jonah going into the depths of the belly of the fish. Let's talk about our Lord who, is a, who Jonah is a signpost of, of the mercy of God that as He descends into that grave in the very belly of the earth the most pristine and prestigious and beautiful and holy person that has ever walked the face of this earth takes it all upon Himself. And I can't handle a conversation with a brother in Christ because of the wickedness. And Jesus Christ takes it all upon Himself. And yes, Nuremberg was horrible. And yes, what the Nazis did was wicked. And, and, what, and what Assyria did is unthinkable on the pages of history. But we carry that around in our minds all day long. There are men and women that if it wasn't for the conscience that was placed within them and if it wasn't for civil government and the, and the authority of parents and there wasn't a whole host of restraints that we would be the same. But God in His mercy places a conscience within us. God in His mercy gives us parents as authorities over us. God in His mercy gives us civil government to restrain us. Thus, we look out and we think there's blessing and prosperity. We look out and we think we live in a pretty tame world. But that's only because, because our hands are tamed and our minds are not. The internet is flush and, and flooded with a whole host of wickedness that is at the very fingertips and men and women visited every single day. There is such wickedness in the world. And those are the people God saves. You, brother. You, sister. Are we to think so high and mighty that we are truly any better than Assyria? Are we to think that just because someone has tied our hands, that we're any more deserving than Nineveh? No, and sometimes we're not even as deserving. Why? Because we are Jonah. We have experienced the mercy of God and the grace of God in such a way that is unfathomable in Christ. And still we won't go. Still we won't do. Still we run. That when you read the book of Jonah, you should see the unfathomable mercy of God who saves sinners of whom I am chief. This little message, this little book is a message of God's saving grace going out to the whole world. Every tra tribe, nation, and tongue. And we are the beneficiaries of that faithfulness that God would forgive us our sins and make us children of the Most High God, employing us in the service to be priests and kings. It's unfathomable. Not only does He save prisoners and give them two meals a day, but He pulls them out of the prisoner and gives them swords to put in their sheath and every provision necessary to take dominion over all the earth with the Gospel message, to take it to the ends. His mercy is unfathomable. Number three. 
and possibly the most important reason you should read the book of Jonah. And as you walk away from it, what you should receive is that Jonah was to foreshadow the person and work of Christ in a particular way. That Jonah was to foreshadow the person and work of Christ in a specific way that still proclaims a message to us. We cannot understand or begin to understand the significance of Jonah's mission without seeing and grasping that it is a Christ-centered book with a Christ-centered message and a Christ-centered mission. Hugh Martin, a commentator and faithful brother in Christ, says Jonah's mission isn't to be seen as isolated, nearly romantic incident in sacred history. Rather, it becomes one of the grandest events in the history of redemption from the exodus of Israel to the advent of the Messiah and the pouring out of the Gentiles. This is the way that Jesus saw it. That's why in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41, Jesus um, would say something like, um, that, 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 I, that, that we read it earlier, you know, um, they asked for a sign. He says, we won't give you any sign except that sign of Jonah's who is in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. But Jonah is a type. He's a shadow. He's a picture. That God's dealing with Jonah and the Ninevites becomes this wonderful picture which prefigures the great work of Christ that will accomplish, that He will accomplish as the Savior of all His people. That Jonah stands as a signpost for the Old Testament people of God. But even more clearly, Jonah this morning stands as a signpost to the people of God now and the people throughout the nations as He points to Jesus Christ and the work that He would accomplish on their behalf. Thus He says, here is a greater than Jonah. That He would have a greater death that as Jonah would descend in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, Jesus Christ would enter into the belly of the earth just as Jonah would receive the recompense of God for his sins and disobedience. Jesus Christ would be greater. And in, 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 in all of his purity and holiness, he would receive in the belly of the earth the punishment of God. And God's wrath would be poured out upon him such that he would pray a prayer of deliverance and be delivered. That, 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 that Jonah, that Jesus would have a greater tomb than Jonah. And that Jesus would have a greater resurrection than Jonah. That as Jonah comes out of the belly of the fish and preaches a message of repentance to the nations, Jesus Christ would exit that tomb. That, that, that greater death, that greater tomb, that greater punishment, He would be made alive by the power of the Spirit and His ministry, Father, would be a greater than Jonah, such that His message is still being preached even to this day and is able to save unto the uttermost. That Jonah stands as a signpost to Christ. He prefigures that great work in which Christ would accomplish on behalf of sinners. And that this is a message that speaks of Christ whose resurrection is the proof of the message that He preached and it is able to save. And if you think that, um, and if you think that, that, that what was accomplished there in Assyria even compares, it does not. The primary message of Jonah is about Christ who conquers and reigns in the hearts of men and that we have a resurrected Savior and that you today should believe. You today should believe. He stands as a signpost to you as he points to Christ. That if you read, the, the, one of the purposes of the book of Jonah is to point you to Christ, church. To point you to Christ, young men, young women. To point you to Christ, boys and girls. Why? So that ye may believe in the Son. John chapter 20. 
in the last two verses, John gives us the reason for Jesus and the signs. He says this in verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Father, why did you leave the book of Jonah? These things are written, these signs are given. Why? So that you may believe. Listen. You may be like the nation of Israel this morning. Looking for a sign. Looking for a flash of lightning in the heavens. Looking for God to write your name or His name. Across the sky this morning saying, come to me. You may be looking for a picture of the Son of God in a pancake or with bacon or whatever. It is that people look for these days. They want more and more and more and more. And God stands up this morning out of Isaiah chapter number 5 and out of Jonah and out of a number of other places and says, what more could I have done than I have already done? What more do you want this morning? But this is, this is what you get. You get a written record of the grace of God accompanied by signs and wonders declaring that this man Jesus, the Son of God, a greater than Jonah, whose mercies reach farther than the heavens, is available to you today if you will believe. Say, but, 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 but God, bring somebody back from the dead. No, 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 no. You have Moses and the prophets. And listen, church, today, you not only have Moses and the prophets, but you have the apostles and Jesus Christ. And if you will not believe them, you will not believe one who was raised from the dead. Why? Because he was. And you still won't believe. This morning you may be saying, Lord, give me a sign and I'll believe. Well, this morning, this is your sign, the preaching of the cross. This is your sign, the preaching of the gospel. This is the sign, the man who entered into the belly of the earth for three days and three nights and took upon that that, that wrath that you so deserve. And may you not be One of those in whom God heaps upon condemnation in the book of Matthew. May you not be one of those this morning who will stand on that great day and the men of Nineveh will rise up and and proclaim against you. Can I close this morning by exhorting you with that? In Matthew chapter number 12, that's exactly what he says. He says that on that great day, there will be the men of Nineveh will stand up And chide them. Um, and proclaim against them. Matthew 12 and verse 41. Then the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Think about that this morning. These last few moments. Think about that great day as you stand on the judgment bar of God think about what you're going to say I never saw enough Lord I never witnessed enough Father if you only would have sent one more sign and as you choke on those words before you can even get them out a man from Nineveh will rise up and say sir you have no excuse 
we had so much less. Never hearing the gospel at all, we had one man that come reluctantly, didn't even want to preach it, and he preached it for three days. And you, you have been in the house of God all your lives, some of you. You have received the tremendous grace of God and the blessings of the Word of God. You've had fathers and you've had mothers and you've had um, grandparents and you've had aunts and uncles and you've had children um, bring to you over and over and over again. And thus God stands up this morning and He says, and He says out of Isaiah chapter 5, What more could I have done? Why will you not come this morning? What more could I have done in my vineyard than I've already done? Beloved, if you're not in the kingdom this morning, why have you not come? Do you need another sign? This morning you have the sign of Jonah. So come. You have Christ and His apostles. And beyond Jonah stands a greater than Jonah in whom you must trust and believe. And if you're in the kingdom this morning, maybe you're like Jonah. (laughs) There's no doubt this morning, beloved, that we have a greater than Jonah who is Christ. And with that greater revelation, we have a greater responsibility to serve him with more clarity. In some sense, too, Jonah was without excuse, wasn't he? Right? A man who had experienced the unique mercy of God should have been the prime uh, proponent to go to the nation and say, look what God's done in my nation. Look what God's done among these people. Look what he did when they deserved, mer- deserved judgment. He extended mercy. Let me tell you about King Jeroboam and the wickedness. The Assyrians, the king from top down would have came and said, but you don't know what we've done. Let me tell you about Jeroboam. Let me tell you about my own heart. Let me tell you about what Christ has accomplished on my behalf. Let me tell you about what God has, God has extended it unto me. But no, Jonah would not. In some sense, Jonah too was without excuse. A man who had experienced the unique grace of God and still he spurned it. And disobedience. It turned him from not only his duty to God, but his privilege to serve the king. Listen, don't think yourself this morning too much better than Jonah. We might be surprised that when we stand before him that day, yes, as in Christ's righteousness, but, but receiving the reward of our works. You know? Imagine how many times he's going to say, why I didn't? And he's going to say, I, I didn't because I didn't have time. I didn't because it seemed more prudent to do this. But in that moment, our hearts are going to be truly uncovered in the light of His countenance and the honesty is going to come. It wasn't for a lack of time. It wasn't because of prudence. But it was out of fear, anger, bitterness, laziness, a whole host of sins that caused me to run from the presence of the Lord. So if you are in Christ this morning, church, you have received amazing grace and you are the prime proponent to send out into the world and preach and proclaim and declare God's mercy to the nations. And guess what? He may just do it. (laughs) That's right. I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that yes, Jesus Christ Himself could show Himself forth through a people such that God could save an incalculable number of people. We have to believe that. Otherwise, I'm not sure that we believe in the sign of Jonah at all. But Jonah stands this morning as a monument of grace, not only to the sinner, but also to the saint, as the very foundation of our ministry. Therefore, let us believe and let us know uniquely experience in that grace of God. Let us make it known to all the earth. Psalm 136, that His grace and mercy endures forever.
Not only may we clearly receive the love of Christ, but may it be displayed to a lost and a dying world. May all the world have to step over the clear display of God's grace, not only in our life, but coming out of our lips, such that on that day, they will have no excuse. Sir, why are you not in the kingdom today? Has God not done enough? Ma'am, why are you not serving God today? What has God not done? What more do you need? You need nothing more. All you need is Christ. And if you have Him, amen and go. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We praise You. We glory in You, Father. We revel in the work of Christ. Father, how the Old Testament seems so distant, Father, in days past. seems so removed from you. It seemed like another message, even at times, Father, than the mercy of Christ. But oh, how you are so ever-present on every page, Father, in every account, exalting your Son in magnificent ways. Oh, that we only had greater eyes to see and clearer ears to hear. Father, more tender hearts to receive. How much more of Christ, no doubt, you would give. Father, we need now for you to take the word that was read, Father. The truths that were proclaimed. We need for you to sift through them, Father, in our own hearts. We need for you to take even some of the muddled things that I proclaimed, Father. And to put them at a distant back. Put them distantly, Father, removed from those things um, which are pressing upon our hearts. Father, take the clearer truths. Take the realities upon the text, Father. Take the message of the gospel to the depths of our souls, Father, such that we would walk away forever changed, whether it's a sinner in need of salvation, Father, or whether it's a saint in need of edification. Father, build us up as your body. Father, you deserve it. Your Son is worthy. Your spirit, Father, is powerful. So let us, Father, yield, humble our hearts in such a way um, to cause us, Father, to serve you with the utmost joy as a privilege to be called a child of the Most High God and in the service of the King. Father, we need you to accomplish this in our hearts because we cannot. Father, we need you to take the word. We need you to enlighten our souls, Father. We need you to lay it upon our hearts, Father. We need you to read it and to read it slowly to us until we get it. Father, may you guard our hearts against pride. May you guard our hearts against prejudice, Father. May the mercy of God just be so clear all the days of our lives, Father, that it provokes us to service and to obedience and the utmost joy, Father, of living for the King. Father, as we glean into Jonah's life over the next few months, Father, may we never lose sight of Christ. May this text never be boiled down to some simple imperatives, some moral lessons, Father, or an evangelistic method. But may we see Christ in all of his glory, provoking his people, stirring them back to himself, extending his love to the nations, and exalting Christ. And may we love the people of God and may we love the nations and may we love Christ all the more for it. And for that, Father, we are thankful for what you have preserved. 
So go with us, Father. Go with us upon that mountain. And may we feel your presence. And may we be forever changed. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing number 380. My Jesus, I love thee. Number 380. My Jesus, I love thee.